The shortest parable Jesus ever told was in Matthew 13, 44. You don't need to turn there. It's very short. I'll read it for you. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy. Then in his joy. Those are important words. He went, sold all that he had, and he bought the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When we find it, we would do anything we can to make sure that we keep it. Have you found it? Have you found the greatest treasure that has ever existed, will exist, and will last for all of eternity? You may not realize this, but this morning our hope is to see in Revelation the treasure map to this great hidden treasure. The book of Revelation, it means literally, Revelation, to reveal something that is hidden. Just like a treasure map, the book of Revelation wants us to find something that has been mysterious, and it does so by giving us symbols. Have you ever looked at a treasure map and realized that it doesn't have written words? It's a picture. And there's symbols on the map telling you where to go on the direction for where the treasure is. For example, you'll find in some treasure maps, or at least most of them, an X. The X marks the spot where the treasure is. So when you go searching for the treasure, you don't look for a literal X. You look for the general area. It's a sign. It's a symbol. And what you're hoping is to find something much better than just some black paint on the ground marking an X. You're hoping to find a treasure. If you're not used to treasure maps, since most of us probably aren't pirates in the room, have you ever gone to an amusement park or a national park outdoors and it's so large and big that they give you a map. And that in the map, there might be something like a stick figure man and a stick figure woman. One looking like he's wearing pants, the other one looking like they're wearing a dress. They're standing next to each other. Do you all know what this stands for? Anyone? A restroom, good. I was hoping somebody would know. It's it's somewhat obvious. We've seen this symbol everywhere. It's the symbol of a bathroom. Now, if you're looking for actual stick figures in the amusement park, you're going to be really disappointed if you need to use the restroom. It's actually something better than stick figures. It's a bathroom. So, in the same way, when you read the book of Revelation, do not make the mistake that many people do. First, don't make the mistake that it's something hidden and strange and confusing and we'll never figure out what it means. Oh, dear revelation. No, it's actually supposed to reveal something hidden. It's supposed to make things more clear. Secondly, don't make the mistake that looking at the symbols themselves is like looking for the X on the ground or looking for the stick figures in the bathroom. You may not find them. You want to find something better than an X on the ground. The reality is so much better, and so it is with the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Today's passage of Scripture, we're going to consider three symbols, and if we follow them one by one, we will find our map toward the kingdom of heaven, 
and we will see greater realities than the symbols themselves, even though the symbols are glorious in and of themselves. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. That would be found on page 1030 in the black Bibles in front of you. Revelation chapter 4. We will be considering both chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, together because they tell an amazing story with an incredible setting. So chapter 4 is going to set the scene, and chapter 5 is going to tell a story, a drama. We're going to see three symbols in them. We'll start first with symbol number 1 found in verses 1 through 3. Symbol number 1 found in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Symbol number one. A throne. If any of you remember seeing the movie The Wizard of Oz, do you remember the scene where Dorothy and her three friends, Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow, they come before the great throne of the Wizard of Oz. They're shaking. Scarecrow can't even stand up. They're falling down all over themselves because of the great glory of the Oz. That is until Toto, Dorothy's little dog, pulls the curtain away and all we see is an old man behind a curtain, pulling levers, pushing buttons, talking into a microphone. There is no great wizard of Oz. It's a fake. Revelation chapter 4 is your chance to see behind the curtain of earth. Behind the curtain of earth, there is heaven. Behind the curtain of earth, there is a throne. And when we peel back the curtain, when we open the door and walk in like John does, you will not be disappointed. John sees a throne. He hears a voice. The voice is the voice of Jesus. You can contrast what he says here, the voice of the trumpet that he had heard. That was from chapter 1. Jesus says, come up and I will show you what must take place. And there he sees the throne. All of chapter 4 is describing the throne room. And I find it very interesting that he spends very little time describing in chapter 4 the one seated on the throne. Did you notice in verse 2? At once, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And I don't know about you, but at that point I'm like, well, what's he look like? I want to know a lot about that one seated on the throne. And this is all you get. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And then he starts talking about what's around the throne. So there's a throne. There's a lot of stuff going around it. And there has, there's one who's, who's like Carnelian and Jasper. Well, that obviously means he must be beautiful. He must be precious and valuable. Now, if you're wondering, what's Carnelian and Jasper? I don't remember studying that on my periodic table. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't really even know which stones they're referring to, and so it takes a lot of work, and I don't think there's unanimous consensus about what these stones were, but I think the best guess is that they're clear like crystals or diamonds. 
He is not a diamond. The one seated on the throne is not a diamond. He is like a diamond. Probably even referring to his invisibility. The fact that he is gloriously beautiful, but you can't really even see him. And in fact, to understand who he is, don't just look at what his physical appearance might look like. Look at everything around and about him, and you'll get a sense for what he's like. Look at the throne. A throne is a symbol, of course, of power. He's powerful. He's seated on the throne. He has all authority. He has majesty and sovereignty. He is reigning and ruling. The one seated on the throne is in control, and he is the judge who makes laws, and he determines what is good and right. It is not unique in Scripture for us to see people glimpsing the throne of God and be in awe. In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, and each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. 2 Chronicles 18.18, Therefore hear this word of the Lord, the prophet said. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven were standing on his right hand and on his left. Psalm 45.6, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever and you rule with a scepter of justice. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. He is clothed and girded with strength. It's not unfamiliar for the Bible to refer to God as one who is seated on a throne with strength and majesty and power and authority. His throne is everlasting. So if you want to find a great treasure this morning, you want to open up the treasure map, the first symbol you need to understand, step number one is to see the throne. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you want to learn what it means to be a Christian. Well, the first thing to understand Christianity is to realize that the God who created everything, he's seated on a throne like a king. He's the king of all kings and he has authority over everything, including you. And in order to become a Christian, you need this perspective change. The change of knowing that you're not on the throne. God is will be and forever on the throne, regardless of what you or anyone else on this earth will ever do. It's a perspective change that happened similar to the day August 14th, 1959. My guess is you don't know that date off the top of your head, but it's a day that changed our perspective forever, all of us. For all of history, until that day, everyone has only looked up into the heavens and saw the stars and the moon and the sun. But on August 14, 1959, for the first time in human history, Explorer 6 sent a photo of Earth. And from the heavens, we looked down on us. Do you see the perspective change? That's a perfect illustration of what's happening in the book of Revelation. All Christians in John's day have been looking all their lives from the perspective of the earth 
And what they need is Explorer 6-like photos. They need John's vision of a throne because they're surrounded by thrones. They're surrounded by the throne of the Roman government. All they can see is Caesar sitting on his throne. All they can see is war and violence and evil and injustice. From their perspective, God is not in control and evil is winning the day. Christians are being burned to death, thrown into prison. John himself is on the island of Patmos. As, a as he was being persecuted, and this was his judgment. It was jail for him. He was exiled and banished out on an island as he writes this letter. But he receives a vision. He receives a new perspective. And friend, if you want to be a Christian today, and every day if you are a Christian, we need to realign ourselves with a new perspective, a heavenly one that looks down on the earth from above. All around the throne are these amazing creatures who are in awe. So look at the response to the throne. And every symbol that we'll see this morning, you're going to see a response from the people that see these things. So look at the response in chapter 4, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it was, were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The living creature like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never stop ceasing to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives for and ever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they are existed and created. I wish we could have time this morning to dive into every little explanation of these smaller symbols. But I think it's obvious when we look at this, the main symbol is the throne. So regardless of what our view is, our view could be that these creatures and these elders are angels in heaven. And that's one very good interpretation of what this symbol means. Another view could just be that these symbols are symbols of Christians. The 24 thrones are the Old Testament believers who are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles established the church. So the people of God of all day are the 24 elders that are on their thrones. And that these four living creatures are representations of all the peoples and creatures on all the earth. And so all of the people of God or all the angels or all the animals, whatever way you want to work it, they're all worshiping and bowing down before the throne. So it doesn't matter so much who they are. It matters who he is. He is worthy he is worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is he worthy? Well, they say, 
for he is the creator of all things, and by them they have existed and have been created. You should not take these symbols too literally because it makes no sense. How do you even make sense of the details of these living creatures that are with six wings flying? And it says they never stop ceasing to say holy, holy, holy. And then it says whenever they say holy, 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 the 24 elders are falling down. And so it seems like you've got these creatures that are saying holy, holy, holy. And when they say that, then all these people say, okay, well, here's the crown. Okay, Well, they said, holy, holy again, and there's the crown. So it's just this nonstop bowing down again and again. They never stop doing it again and again. It's a picture of nonstop worship. That all of God's creatures are worshiping the creator, and they never stop doing it. So my friend, do you think that as your life? You're a creature. You're not the creator. The world that you live in, you did not make. Are you in awe of the one who spoke it all into existence with his word, that he holds you together by his word? Have you ever left speechless at a sunset, a mountain range, the ocean? I'm growing greater concerned, increasingly concerned that our world does not know how to be in awe anymore. I think some of our technology has made us, oh, so, so what? Whoop-dee-doo, we've got a picture of the earth. Wow, that's cool. We're spoiled by our technology. We're spoiled by countless pictures and images. Think of your Facebook, Instagram, Twitter feeds, and we just scroll through things that are breathtaking and awesome. Oh, yeah, that's cool. When was the last time you stopped, paused, and just sat in awe? of the beauty of God's creation, sat in all of the God who is, and just sat there in all. Never get tired of it. Never get bored. Never stop saying holy, holy, holy. I read this week a book by A.W. Tozer who said, what's wrong with our worship? He said, I can safely say on the authority that all has been revealed in the word of God that if any man or woman on the earth is bored or turned off by worship, that they are not ready for heaven. Our God is great and glorious. He is beyond our comprehension. He cannot be understood or comprehended by any human means. If he could, then I would never worship him. One thing is for sure, we will never bow down our knees and say, holy, 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 to that which we can figure out in our own mind, that which we can explain will never bring us to a place of awe. That will never fill us with astonishment or wonder or admiration. Friend, does that describe you? Or have you got God all figured out? I think this morning and every morning we need to wake up and first and see the symbol of a throne. Realize we're creatures. We're finite Just one picture from NASA should make you feel really small. How much more if you see the symbol and the picture of the mighty throne of the majestic God who created all of that and so much more. We haven't even found the ends of our universe yet. That's symbol number one. You want to receive the treasure. You want to follow the map toward this kingdom. See the throne. Symbol number two. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with 
in and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look on it. I said chapter 4 is setting the stage. It's the scene before this drama starts to unfold. We see first symbol number two. As this drama unfolds, we see a scroll. That's symbol number two. So there was a throne, and everybody's worshiping the one on the throne. But then we see he's holding a scroll. Now what does this mean? What does this symbol stand for? The word's biblion. It just simply means book. And again, we shouldn't take it literally. You should not be looking for an X on the ground on this treasure map. You should be realizing it's a symbol of something much, much better. Remember, the one seated on the throne looked like a diamond or a clear crystal. Has he got a hand now? So now the diamond has a hand. That's taking it too literally. That's missing the point. The diamond doesn't have a hand. Metaphorically, symbolically, the one is holding his plans. The scroll is representative of the word of God. It's representative of the promises of God. It says it's written on front and back. There's only one place in all of Scripture something's written in front and back. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the law, the word of God that comes down from the fiery heaven on Mount Sinai, which we'll start looking at actually next week. So his hand is holding on to his promises. But here's the deal. It's closed up. It's sealed. His plans for the world are sealed up. There's there's nothing happening. And so you have this voice and it says, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We have a wonderful illustration right here on stage. Look to my right or to my left. See our embassy logo? That's a seal. That's what they're talking about, a seal. And there's seven of them on this scroll. So imagine this scroll and then stamped with a wax steel. Seven seals. You'd stamp something and seal it with a wax if you wanted to make sure that only the right person with the right authority would open it. So, for example, if someone dies, they have a, new, a, 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 a testament and a will that they give to say, who's going to take care of my inheritance and my money and my possessions and my house? And it's written on that piece of paper and it's sealed up. And so in this instance, we have God's plans and they're sealed up with Seven seals, the perfection of sealing them up. No one can open them. And so he asks, who is worthy? He says, no one. John looks around. No one steps forward. There's four amazing creatures before the throne. They don't step forward. There's 24 elders around the throne. They're not worthy. And so what's the response to this symbol? Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. It's literally, I wept and I wept. It's the double emphasis to let you know he is weeping loudly and he is weeping a lot. Now why is John weeping? Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or take a look in it. And just like today, if someone has a will, there's an executor of that will that executes 
who gets what. They're in charge of executing the parameters set for in the will. So it's not just no one knows how to read. Oh, that's sad. It's a real illiterate heaven. That's not what's going on here. It's not that no one has the power to open. It's a symbol of no one can execute the plan that God has for the world. No one can accomplish his purposes. He has a plan. It's in his hand and he's holding on to it. But there's not a single person in all of heaven or on the earth that can open it. And so John sees that devastating reality and he weeps. Would you weep? My guess is that a lot of us in this room have been right where John is, symbolically speaking. How many times have you looked from the perspective of the earth and you're wondering, what in the world is God doing here? I don't see any good that can come out of this. How many times have you literally just wept because you look at evil in the world and you just say, it's just going to keep happening. It, shootings keep happening in schools, don't they? When's it going to stop? How long, O oh Lord? God, please, bring your justice. What, what's your plan in all of this? I was reminded of this very grim fact when I was reading an NPR article this week. The man said I was watching the wrenching, sickening images of chemical weapons being attacked and unleashed in Syria. Scores of people, many of them children with daughters. He said he immediately reached the remote control knowing his children were with him in the room and he wanted to roll past these pictures of innocent women and children foaming, writhing, grasping to breathe. And then he stopped. He said, I thought, no. They need to see this. This is the world we live in. So we sat there, and we watched in silence. And as a journalist, I've covered lots of wars, but I can think of nothing to say when I saw those images on my television screen. Finally, one of the daughters asked, Dad, why? Why would anybody do this? Throughout my journalistic career, I've always avoided using the word evil when covering these terrible kind of events. Even in Bosnia or Kosovo, they'd later be labeled war crimes. I was a part of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept, a word we used only when we didn't know what madness or imagined infractions might drive human beings to do murder, even on mass scales. So as a reporter, I, I avoided saying the word evil, but now as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell my children about evil. As we struggle to explain the cruel and incomprehensible behavior, they will not see it just in our history when they read about the Holocaust and Bosnia and Rwanda and Darfur, but they will see it in their own times today. There you go. You look out in the world and you see such atrocity that even a man who thinks evil is a cartoonish idea can't avoid telling his daughters, girls, there's evil in the world. So I want you to stare at that evil in the face as you have so many times in your life the pain and suffering 
and I want you to be where John is and think, there's no hope. There's nothing we can do. Because, friend, if you want to follow the path of Christian faith, you must come at terms at times. There's, there's going to be a point, if not many of them, we're going to realize, apart from God accomplishing some great grand plan, there is no hope for me. There's nothing I can do. Have you come to that realization? Have you looked at not just the evil in the world, but been overwhelmed by the evil in your own heart and wept and wept. I believe we must all see this symbol of his weeping as a normal journey along the path of the Christian life. In the world we live in, we do not need to act like everything is peachy keen this morning as we celebrate the resurrection. The world is still full of all kinds of evil. The question we have is, is God doing something about it? Is anyone going to open the scroll? Is his plan going to be accomplished? How is our weeping going to turn to joy? We should weep. We should weep when we turn on our television news and we look at the evil in our hearts and in the world. But why? Why in the great difficulties of this world can we still rejoice in our sorrows? Symbol number three, verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Ha, such good news. Stop crying. Weep no more. Behold, look, see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So get the picture. Here's the drama. This is what I'm imagining as I read this. I imagine John seeing the throne and its majesty. <sighs> Glorious. It's like he's walking along his path and then boom, he is caught. He is arrested. He stops. He's in awe. Holy, holy, holy. Then he sees the scroll. Seven seals. He's thinking about the plans of God and then all of a sudden no one can open it. And he weeps and he weeps. And so this is the picture I get of John. I, I get a picture of him probably already on his knees because of that image of the throne. And I see him just head covered, snot pouring out of his nose. He's a mess. He's not looking up. He's looking down. And he's, no. And he hears a voice. He says, stop crying. He's not looked up yet. And he hears the voice. And the voice says, there's one that can open the scroll. <gasps> what? There's one that can open the scroll? What? Here, here's why I want you to get that image. He's not seen, but he's heard. He's a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a lion that can open the scroll? And so he looks, and look what happens when he looks. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, I saw a lamb, and it was standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Okay, I'm so confused. He said, when I was down here, I was ready to look and see a lion, but I see a lamb. Is it a lion or is it a lamb? Which is it? And that's what's so beautiful about apocalyptic literature. 
That's what's so beautiful about symbols instead of literal reading. You can have two things be the same thing. So imagine our treasure map. Imagine that down on the ground on the treasure map, you got the X, but then next to the X, you got the treasure chest. Two symbols, both meaning the same thing. The treasure's here, but you don't find the treasure right away. It's just a symbol of where it's at. So here we got a double symbol working together that means the same thing. The lion is the lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 49 when they were given a promise that through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, one of them named Judah, that from them would raise up one of those sons and one of those sons would have a tribe and then there would be a king. And that king would one day become David and David would rule and he would have might and power. And so everybody was waiting for that David-like king that would come and rule and take out Caesar. That's what we're waiting for, God's plan. He's going he's to bring justice. I'm looking around at all these killings of Christians, burnings and imprisonments. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear the lion-like king. And he looks up and he sees a lamb. A lamb who has been slain. And he's standing. So you have a dead lamb that's now alive. Do you know why we're doing this text for Easter Sunday now? Because the whole point of this throne room scene, the climax, it's, it's building. Have you noticed the crescendoing effect of this scene and this drama? All of a sudden it gets to this amazing, glorious moment where the lion who was dead, who is now alive, is the lion who is a lamb. It's Jesus. Turn over to Revelation chapter 22. I want to show you without any confusion... Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Who's this lion descending from David? I have Jesus. I, Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus says it himself. If you need some help here, it's Jesus. Jesus is the king that's like David with power and might. But there's a twist. Just as there's a twist in our vision when John is down with his head enclosed in his tears and he looks up and it's not what he thought it was going to be. So it was with all of the Christians of their day. They thought they were going to get a kingly like David, a lion who's going to kill Caesar, rule over the Roman Empire, and establish the new Israel. But instead, they got the Isaiah 53 suffering servant who decided to humble himself, become a servant. And instead of taking the sword and fighting with military might, he took the sword on himself. He died. So his power and his greatness and his majesty wasn't because of how powerful he was in his military might. His power was in his humility, in his death. He's the most glorious king that's ever existed. The lion is the lamb who was slain, but he is now risen, and now he is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Do you know what that means? It means that he can fulfill the purposes of God. But guess what? Read the text carefully. It's already happened. 
In Revelation chapter 5, it says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes with the seven spirits sent down to the other earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, past tense. He already did it. By your blood, you ransomed, past tense, the people for God from every tribe and language and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the throne, around the throne, the the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying, With a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down. And worshiped. He has conquered. He has ransomed. He already has opened the scroll. God's plan already has been accomplished. You're supposed to read this and not think this is going to happen in the future at some time. No, He has conquered death by death and then rising again on that day, that first Easter Sunday. Amen and hallelujah to Him be all glory and might forever and ever. And the song we will sing at this church every single Sunday, the song you should be singing every single morning, and the song that will be sung for all eternity is glory to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lamb. He deserves all power and wealth and wisdom and glory and honor and blessing. Put the two chapters next to each other. Do you realize the one on the throne, the creator of everything, is getting all the glory and praise? Holy, holy, holy. And then it says they sang a new song in chapter 5. Why? Because they learned something. As this scroll was being revealed, Jesus is the one on the throne. Jesus is God. The man became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was God incarnate in the flesh. Otherwise, these elders, these four living creatures, they would not bow down and give worship to anything other than someone who is God himself. So if you're confused at all about whether or not Jesus is in fact the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, fully God, fully man, read Revelation 4 and 5. See that the one on the throne who deserves all glory and praise is the one who takes the cross and dies for sinners. He is the lamb who is slain. And that's why the new song that they sing is to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It's one and the same. Three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are you starting to see that there is a treasure that is more valuable than anything you have on the earth. The symbols that we have seen this morning are only pointing to the greater, more glorious reality. Many people 
when they choose symbols for their kingdoms, they want to choose the biggest, baddest animals. For example, in Russia, they have chosen a bear. Britain has chosen a lion. The United States has chosen an eagle. France has chosen a tiger. Canada has chosen a beaver. Okay, maybe not Canada. They're weird anyway, right? (laughs) Just kidding. If you're Canadian, we love you too. You're included in the all nations. But everybody else outside of Canada, they choose a symbol of great might and power. What's the Christian symbol? It's a lamb. The audacity. Yeah, he's a lion too. But the prevailing symbol of the Christian faith is not one of conquering with military might like the lion. It's the lamb. The lamb who was slain but is now risen again. Could I present to you a more glorious treasure? Is there anything more precious than the one who has ransomed you from sin, Satan, and death itself. My friend, hear the words of that elder. Stop your weeping, and behold, there is one who doesn't just have the authority to open the scrolls. He already did. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is alive. Let's pray together.